the Buddhist discourses are grouped into different collections. The one that we have been discussing was out of the Diganikaya, which are the long discourses. Nikaya means collection, Diga is long, long collection. There are five main collections, middle end things, Majjhima Nikaya, then the long collection, Diga Nikaya, then the Angutra Nikaya, which are the um, numerical things. They have 11 books and each book contains either the uh, discourse on one subject or two or three or four or five, goes all the way to 11. Then there's this one, this is the Samyutta Nikaya, that's a thematic collection. Here, different discourses about the same topic have been collected together so that there is a whole group of discourses given at different times, each one fairly short, but grouped together into one topic, one discourse. And uh, then there is the Sutta which contains, which is supposed to be the oldest of the collections and uh, actually belongs to the miscellaneous collection. All the rest of the stuff is in the miscellaneous collection. The, um, this thematic collection is interesting because we can find one subject very well explained from different angles. Now, the reason this was put together like that is for the, uh, to facilitate the reciting. There are these uh, memory bridges in the days of the Buddha and after the Buddha's uh, Parinibbana these discourses were recited. And uh, I was told that um, even ten years ago still, there were two monks in Burma, very old, who were able to recite the whole Pali Canon in Pali, which is an enormous feat. And um, in those days of the Buddha, after the Buddha's uh, Parinibbana, these were transmitted through recitation and therefore they were collected like that but that wasn't done immediately the collecting the collecting like this was done for, at the third council of Arahants, and shortly after that they were written down and they were written down in Sri Lanka and because Pali didn't have an alphabet they were written down in the Sinhalese alphabet and so of course Sri Lanka uh, has a particular um, feeling of ownership for the Pali canon because it's written down in the alphabet. This is not even translated as a thematic collection. It's uh, translated as Book of the Kindred Sayings, grouped suttas. Kindred, they similar sayings, but uh, one of the newer translations says it's uh, um, thematic, the themes are put together. And this one, the one I picked at the moment, is the collection about in-breathing and out-breathing. 
in breath and out breath. One of the habits that the translators have, I think it's in order to save paper or something, is that they do not repeat the same thing that was in a, another um, discourse. So if you're reading it, you have to go back to something else. All they're doing is putting little dots. So you have to find what the little dots mean. I think I do know. Yes. This is um, called the one condition. A travity in the Jato Grove, in Anatta Pindika's Park. I think I told you that already, what that is, didn't I? The exalted one said, Monks, there is one condition which, if cultivated and made much of, is of great fruit, of great profit. What is that one condition? It is concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. And how cultivated, how made much of, is concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing of great fruit, of great profit. Under this rule, under this rule means in this dispensation, in the Buddhist dispensation. doesn't mean that it's a special rule in the Buddhist dispensation. A monk goes to the forest or the foot of a tree or a lonely place and sits down cross-legged holding the body straight. Now this business about the foot of a tree is quite interesting because in India and also in Sri Lanka there is a certain um, certain native trees which have what are called the buttress roots and the roots are they well they're in the ground too but they grow out of the ground and they grow out of the ground something like sometimes two three or four feet high and they build like they look like a little wall and then you can go inside of this they come from both sides and it's like having a little room they can sit at the foot of the tree. The tree itself is your uh, roof, and those two little two things of the buttress roots are your walls. And it's really lovely to sit like that and meditate. I have tried it because I could recognize it from the from the footage, and it's really nice. You feel really sheltered, and because you're sitting down on the ground, nobody can see you, even if you're sitting somewhere where there are people. I have, for instance, done it in the botanical garden at. Uh, Peridenia, which is a very uh, frequented place, but nobody saw me <laughs> because you're quite hidden. And these trees are very common in India and also in Sri Lanka. So that's the foot of a tree, not just any old tree, but like that. A really nice place. So he goes to the foot of the tree or to another lonely place. And he sits down cross-legged, holding the body straight. And this business with the cross-legged also answers the question whether one has to sit in the lotus seat. Now, the lotus seat is something that is usually shown on these statues, but it's, a, um, it's an Indian thing. It's a very much an Indian tradition, this lotus, because of the um, Hatha Yoga 
practiced in India in those days very much and today still very much so. But the Buddha called talks about sitting cross-legged and there is um, I would say hundreds of discourses that mention that to sit down cross-legged and uh, doesn't say lotus feet. Well, it's very nice if it's never to feel nothing wrong with it. But the Buddha didn't specify it. Holding the body straight. Setting mindfulness in front of him. Now, the commentary says setting mindfulness in front of him means between the eyebrows where the Hindus place the brow chakra. Well, I beg to differ. It is not what the Buddha would have said, because that was not his tradition that he followed. The mindfulness in front of him means that mindfulness is in front of everything else that one is doing. It takes first place. He breathes in mindfully and mindfully breathes out. As he draws in a long breath, he knows a long breath I draw in. And as he draws in a short breath, he knows a short breath I draw in. As he breathes out a short breath, he knows I breathe out a short breath. This is the passage which has given rise to the most confusion. So what has been understood by this has been very much, very often, is that if one breathes in and out, one needs to say to oneself, this is a long breath, this is a short breath, this is coming in a long breath, this is going out a short breath. Well, this is, which is obvious nonsense, because if one talks to oneself like that, one's never going to get concentrated. What it means is that one has an exact um, concentration on the breath as it is. And as one knows the breath as it is, the mind doesn't have to give a commentary to it. So, but when one talks like this and one has to explain it to somebody, it's the only way one can explain it. But what has been understood is that one now has to explain it to oneself. One doesn't. It's obvious. One can't sit here and say, that this is a long breath, this is a short breath. There's no way one can do that. But one has to know exactly the concentration has to be with the breath as it is. Which also means, and that is also an important factor, that it means that we don't make the breath anything in particular. Now, in the Buddhist time, where yoga was is very important, and uh, pranayama, the um, breath, the the um, exercises with the breath, were and are important. It is often also misunderstood, or has been then and also now that one has to make the breath something that one can pay attention to. Well, nothing like that. Whatever it is, that's what one pays attention to. One doesn't make it long, short, or anything like that. As it is, that's how, it, that's how one pays attention. Thus he makes up his mind, makes up his mind, I shall breathe in, feeling it go through the whole body. The translator has given footnotes here, which are hopeless. What is this? Oh, that's Woodward and the wise Davis, 1930s. 
Well, I suppose in 1930, one wasn't quite so vivid yet. Um, I shall breathe in, feeling it goes through the whole body, becoming aware of the feeling of in the body as the breath goes in, the sensation. Feeling it goes through the whole body, I shall breathe out, the sensation of the breath. Now, calming down the body aggregate, I shall breathe in, calming down the body aggregate, I shall breathe out. It sounds as if one has to deliberately calm down the body, but that isn't, first of all, it's not possible, and secondly, it it isn't meant like that. As one watches the feeling that arises, the sensation, that with the in-breath, all the way through the body, and all the way out again, the calmness arises anyway, and it is the sitting still which calms down the body anyway and doesn't fiddle around and fools around because one is engaged otherwise. It's not a deliberate one hasn't one can't do anything deliberately in this instance here. Now, he makes up his mind feeling the thrill a very strange word here, zest. Feeling the thrill of zest I shall breathe in Feeling the thrill of zest, I shall breathe out. I have the suspicion that that the word piti is translated as zest because it's uh, zest meaning enthusiasm. Piti is also translated often as interest. And the next uh, line um, supports that. It says, feeling the sense of ease, a translation of succumb. Succumb is happiness. Feeling the sense of happiness, I shall breathe in. Feeling the sense of happiness, I shall breathe out. So what we're talking about here is an immediate experience. I mean, it's just putting the person has just sat down and watching the, the sensation of the breath go through the body is the first jhana. The first jhana, which is the thrill of enthusiasm, the thrill of interest, which is one way of translating piti. And feeling that thrill, I shall breathe out, feeling the sense of ease. And here is given the the Pali word at the bottom, sukham. Happiness, I shall breathe in. Feeling the sense of happiness, I shall breathe out. He makes up his mind, aware of all mental factors I shall breathe in, aware of all mental factors I shall breathe out. Calming down the mental factors I shall breathe in, calming down the mental factors I shall breathe out. Aware of mind I shall breathe in, aware of mind I shall breathe out. Now, it's quite a different way of of um, a different way of instruction from what is uh, said in the Satipatthana Sutta, where the um, it doesn't get that quickly to the jhanas. The first other other things being said, but here in the first jhana, the mind still has thought process. 
not constantly, but interruptedly. There is a certain thinking going on still, it interrupts, until there is a real depth of the first jhana. And particularly what goes on is the repeated application to the meditation subject. In other words, there's a repetition of staying with the pleasant sensation. It doesn't just flow as it does in the following jhanas. If it is very strong, it sometimes can remain strongly concentrated on it. But if it's only mild, and it can be very mild, which we can tell from the words that are being used, thrill, enthusiasm, ease, all these words are fairly mild words. So if it's somewhat mild, the vichara, the, the sustained application, has to happen again and again. Because vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata are five factors which are all present in the first jhana. And vitaka means initial application, putting one's mind on it, vichara, sustained application. All that is present. And with it comes then the, the pleasant sensation, which I'm calling pleasant sensation. So here, what is being said is that one becomes aware of these mental factors which are happening, and we calm them down. In other words, we don't pay real attention to those things which interrupt the first jhana, which is, if that, if we pay attention to what interrupts the first jhana, we cannot continue, we can't go further. So, as we calm them down, we can put more and more attention from a practical standpoint onto the, what's called here the thrill or the uh, enthusiasm or the sense of ease, which is a very common pleasant sensation, the sense of ease. There's a feeling of ease, of, uh, bodily ease. That's a very, very common sensation in the first jhana. So here we, we get to this, that the mental, mental disturbances are still there, but we calm them down by not putting our mind on that. Now he makes up his mind. Now this is another thing which is important. A person is doing that and makes up his or her mind. We don't wait for something wonderful to happen. We make up our mind to do it. It's absolutely essential to make up one's mind to do it. It starts out with, um, he makes up his mind to breathe in, feeling it going through the whole body, and then calming down the body by sitting nicely still and solid then makes up his mind to feel the thrill and the ease which comes with that repeated concentration and then makes up his mind to calm down the mental factors so that the mental factors are not interrupted. Makes up his mind, gladdening my mind, I shall breathe in. Gladdening my mind, I shall breathe out. Composing my mind, I shall breathe in. Composing my mind, I shall breathe out. Detaching my mind, I shall breathe in. Detaching my mind, I shall breathe out. The uh, translations are not the uh, 
uh, necessarily exactly like some other translations. We are here with the gladdening, we come the joy. The gladdening is the joy. So that's the next step. The joy of the mind. And the mind needs to be composed, that means it needs to be concentrated. Now, now comes a different track. The whole the whole thing goes on to a different attack. The, um, up to now it was calm and now it goes to its inside. Because in another discourse, which we had another time, the Buddha also said that we can do inside meditation and really become aware of the factors of insight after any of the journeys. It can be after the first or the second or the third or any or all the way up to the eighth. Now here he's using number one and number two, the joy. And now comes inside. He makes up his mind, so he decides to go along a different path now. Contemplating impermanence, I shall be I'm sorry, I shall breathe in. Contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe out. And now goes on with contemplating dispassion, contemplating renunciation, breathing in and breathing out. What is being said here in the, in the footnotes by the translator does not really um, coincide with what what is being said in the translation because it says freeing it from the hindrances through the first jhana from thought generated and sustained by the second jhana from zest by the third jhana and from pleasure and pain by the fourth jhana well there's nothing being said about being detaching it from pleasure and pain it says now contemplating impermanence if we have had, for instance, first and second jhana, it is an excellent time to then use the calm and collected mind to have a very concentrated, one-pointed attention to the impermanence of whatever it is that we can become aware of within ourselves. The more we become aware of this impermanence in ourselves, the easier it is to let go of our self-illusion. Because this knowing of the impermanence within breaks down our idea of validity. That there's really somebody sitting here who is solid of one piece, who really knows who can do certain things and who has an individual an individuality is an individual entity the impermanent aspect not of death that's too long away the impermanent aspect of this moment to moment living that's what's necessary to um, contemplate 
he is called contemplating. But we can, in, if the mind has been in the jhana, it can actually put its one-pointed attention on the fact that everything that we consist of comes and goes. Everything. And we can do vice versa. We can look for anything within us which isn't impermanent and see if we can find anything. We might make up something. We might make up a story or a fantasy. But if we don't do that, our meditation practice doesn't have the, um, the impetus nor the direction that it should take. So after having contemplated impermanence, obviously there has to be some result from that. Because if there is no result, the next step is an impossibility. The next step is dispassion. And I think I'm going to interject because I have talked to you about the inside steps as far as the examination of the five aggregates goes particularly the four mental aggregates. I started out by realizing that mind and matter are two. The next step was to understand the rising and passing away, not to understand, to realize it. Just as it is here now said, contemplating impermanence, seeing it for the only reality that we can really put our finger on and say, yes, that's what it is constantly changing and then knowing that our five aggregates have causes and conditions from which they have arisen and particularly also investigating the four mental aggregates now the next step after that on the inside part is becoming aware of the dissolution, the disbanding of all that has arisen. So if we're watching a rising and ceasing of thoughts and are really concentrated on that, we will become aware of the fact that they dissolve, the thoughts dissolve and the feelings dissolve and the breath dissolves everything is dissolving and at that moment we actually have a recognition of the fact that there is constant destruction in the whole of ourselves or the universe now this dissolving aspect must become a very strong personal experience because that is the inherent dukkha in existence the inherent dukkha in existence is not just not getting what one wants or getting what one doesn't want that's part of it and everybody has that but the real underlying dukkha of all is the fact that no matter what it is 
it falls apart. There's a dissolving of whatever arises. And when we see that quite clearly, it is very common, particularly for those people who do not do the jhanas, to have fear and terror. For those who do the jhanas, the fear and the terror is usually either very much minimized or doesn't exist at all because the mind has had such a very peaceful and joyous occasion and has had it repeatedly that terror is no longer part of its makeup. It's very difficult to have terror arise when you see something dissolving when the mind is totally at ease and totally at peace. And not only that, but anyone who practices the jhanas correctly has been told and hopefully listened to that instruction to see every jhana dissolve at the end. So the total dissolving or dissolution of everything else is no longer a cause for concern or a cause for a um, surprise or cause for fear, but it's only the natural progression of one's own experience. But if terror arises, it can lead one to stopping the practice at that point, because it can be so strong that the mind refuses to go any further. And even without this terror, there are uh, numerous people who get this far and don't even get the terror, but they see everything dissolving and the mind says, okay, up to here and no further. That's it. Because they can infer from that without even verbalizing it that if everything that they know is dissolving, they themselves must be dissolving too. And that's the last they want no interest in that. So the mind says, this as far as I'll go. And then quite often, because one is already interested in the spiritual path, one finds another teacher who mightn't uh, teach that or where one can start from scratch again and get that far again and then find a new one again if one's got this far. And this is not an uncommon experience and it's easily understandable because the one who's sitting there trying to become concentrated and having a nice meditation is the one who's falling apart. And even with or without terror, he's not interested in falling apart. He wants to keep his nice little ego going and having pleasant sensations. Obviously, I mean, that's what the world is after. So it is only a rare person that wants to go further. And it needs, at that particular point of the practice, it needs a teacher. And it needs a teacher who will not um, give in and say, oh yes, everything is fine, don't worry about it. But it also needs, of course, someone who will explain what is happening, which is something that is very much ex um, emphasized in the Visuddhimagga in the path of purification. This is the moment 
when practice could stop, which doesn't mean that one stops meditating. It just means one stops practicing. Meditation and practice do not have to be synonymous. Not at all. Practicing means that one is determined to get to Nibbana, to determine to leave everything behind and really find absolute truth. But meditation doesn't have to mean that at all. I'm convinced that the 30 people who come to meditation class in Mosville, none of them have ever even thought about leaving everything behind. They just want to meditate. And I'm also convinced that this is the truth for most meditators. Which is fine, there's nothing wrong with it, except that the Buddha didn't teach to stop there. The, uh, the uh, unpleasantness which arises at that moment is the, the ego rearing its head and saying, look, I'm firmly entrenched, I have no intention of leaving. And the mind not being strong enough to recognize that and saying, okay, I'll do something else so that you don't get so knocked, so that you feel better. And uh, it, is, uh, it can be with or without terror. Now, it can come to the... It very often, as I said, comes to the point where one looks for a different teacher so that one can start again and uh, don't get so... Um, don't push. One can stop altogether. One may blame the surroundings. That's very common in monasteries to blame the surroundings because monasteries are usually not terribly comfortable so one, one says well it's too hot they get up too early the food isn't any good uh, the teacher is too, too strict uh, the teacher isn't enlightened uh, the, um, the lay people don't bring enough food whatever it may be anything anything at all the cushions are uncomfortable it doesn't matter anything and with that, one finds another place. One does need a teacher at that time to explain the whole thing. It is one step on the inside path. And most people have to go through it. Now, if one isn't totally honest to oneself about it, one may just get stuck there without ever noticing that one is totally stuck. Because the mind just refuses to go any further. And why is, uh, why is one stuck? Why can't one go any further? Because one is attached. One's attached to the me, which is supposedly this mind and body. And when, when we're attached, we're stuck, we're glued on to the spot where we are. Well, this is a very important uh, step on the inside path. And, um, Sometimes it's the fifth one, or sometimes the sixth one, it depends how one counts these things. And it always comes, always comes after recognizing that everything falls apart. Now again, as I said before, the, uh, the person who can do the jhanas, and this is what is assumed here in this sutta, does not get to that, because after the impermanence, the um, having seen the impermanence, this is the dissolution, the next step is already dispassion. 
So there's absolutely no mention of this terror. But I want to mention it because it does have its place. Having gone through the terror, one does gain an insight into something which is quite important, namely the danger of existence, not just human existence, the danger of all existence, because one has seen this falling apart of everything, one has seen that one is constantly in danger of making bad karma, we're always being tempted and we are, we, one can see quite clearly that the danger which exists is that we are being tempted by our sense contact and have really no defense system as long as there's an ego there so we can see the danger of the ego illusion at this time having gone through this point where one felt, well, this is as far as I'll go and no further, but decided, made up the mind to go further, then that is seen quite clearly. That this is a dangerous place. There is no safety. No safety from bad karma, no safety from uh, temptation, no safety from birth and death, no safety from not getting what one wants, from getting what one doesn't want, no safety from dukkha, in other words. It is dangerous. And when that arises, one very important aspect arises of the practice. And that is the desire to get out. Urgency arises. Samvega. Without this Samvega, the practice is always going to be lackadaisical. Now I see it, now I don't. When we get up in the morning at home, we might say, well, it's a bit late, I haven't got time to meditate, I'll do it tomorrow. Or, I'll wait for the weekend. Or, I'll wait for the next course. Or, <laughs> enough already. <laughs> Turn the light on. <laughs> Without that desire to get out, which has to be really strong, I mean not just lip service. Lip service doesn't, it's totally uninteresting, means nothing. It doesn't have any impact. Um, we are so used to talking and thinking superficially that if somebody's really honest, we sometimes think that that's unbelievable that somebody's really honest. We are always on a superficial level where nothing means anything. It's just talk. And so is this also. But this got to be real. This got to be felt. And only then is it an inside pathway. And that's what it's all about. The inside path. And here we come, having gone through a real resistance. Instead of terror, it can be a real resistance. And this happens probably to everybody, somewhere along the line. I mean, I don't know everybody, so obviously I can only say probably to everybody. But I have seen it happen so many times. 
Should I become a nun or should I get married? <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> Always happens. And the same with the monks, of course. And that's that point. That's that point in practice where it's becoming really dicey. The ego is really feeling attacked. It really feels like now I'm really looking around to find a safe spot. And if the ego wants to find a safe spot, of course it doesn't really want to practice it. It can, one can still meditate. One can meditate to the end of one's life and never get past that spot. Quite possible. Meditation does not necessarily mean that one is really practicing what the Buddha taught. There's got to be more behind that than that. So we have, one can easily find that. Now when that one, one has gone through that and then has seen the truth of the matter, that there isn't any safe spot anywhere to be found, then comes what's called technically called desire for deliverance. This desire for deliverance means that one has finally given up the idea, now really given up the idea, that somewhere out there is somebody who is going to make it all right for me. There isn't anybody out there that's going to do it. Nobody. And there's nobody up there either. <laughs> Nobody's going to fix it. It's a definite understanding. I've got to fix it. And if I've got to fix it, by that time I have seen that I can only fix it if I get rid of I. That is understood then. That isn't done yet, mind you, but it's understood because from that comes the urgency of practice. There's some vega. This desire to be delivered of all dukkha without the idea that there is something or somebody or some country or some practice or some ritual or some whatever that will do it for me. Nothing will do it that we have seen then. And that is that arises out of the understanding that all that exists, no matter who it is, no matter what it is, all has this danger of dissolution, disappearance inherent in it, including the Buddha himself. He also dissolved. So, what is there to hang on to? He gave us a teaching. When he was on his deathbed, Ananda asked him, who, now that the teacher is leaving us, who is going to be our teacher from now on? And he said, the Dhamma will be your teacher. The teaching. That's all. That's all we've got. Now at this point we know that. And there isn't a feeling of being bereft, on the contrary. Because if that's a feeling of being bereft, there's no strength. 
dispense in or dispense is lacking. There's a feeling of being put on one's mettle and having to stand on one's own two feet to find deliverance. And from that point on, that's what one will do, what one will have to do. Doesn't mean that one doesn't cannot consult a teacher. One should, and one does. <coughs> but only then does this next step, which is here immediately mentioned, arise, namely the disenchantment. Oh, not even mentioned this dispassion. It's not one step further. <laughs> the next step is disenchantment. Now that means, the disenchantment means that the nicest sunset, the most beautiful birds, the most loving people, the most interesting conversations can never again tempt us to believe that happiness can be found in existence. It can never tempt us again. We can enjoy them. There's no, nowhere said that one can't enjoy them. But we will never forget again that they are just as impermanent as our own breath. We are imbued now with impermanence. This is the beginning of the real practice. Everything up to then has been leading to it. And as we practice, we will go along this path. It's only our own, up to our own determination or wisdom whether we stop somewhere. The temptation to stop is always there. It is uh, so strong that most people do somewhere along the line. Then, experiencing Dukkha again, they come along again and try again and then stop again and then try again. How much wisdom or insight has arisen in us during the practice to make us see what is most important. So, disenchantment, as the word says quite clearly, means that our infatuation with our sense contact through the seeing, hearing, talking, smelling, tasting, touching and thinking, that infatuation has now finally subsided. We can still have pleasant sense contact. And the interesting aspect of that is that our sense contacts at that time are far more pleasant than they've ever been. Because they are no longer imbued with expectation. We no longer expect from them to be perfectly satisfied. We just take them as they are. And very often one can tell that whatever it is that one is experiencing seems to have far more strength to it 
a sunset looks far more beautiful than it ever has before. And people seem to be far more pleasant than they've ever been before. We have no expectation of any of that to give us full satisfaction. And therefore, because of the expectation having been removed, all disappointment is removed. There's another aspect to this. Because we realize that they will not give us complete happiness, we do not search for them. So they come upon us without having searched for them, so we can be grateful for them. If we go out and search for the pleasantness in the world, obviously we are making that effort and we then feel that it is our due that we get it, what we have been trying to find and to buy and to experience. It's due to us, so we can hardly enjoy it because we're trying to make it into a marketplace commodity by having expended time and energy or money to get it, and now we're getting it. So it has already lost half of its real impact for us. But now, no longer trying to get the pleasantness in life, whatever there is offered, but accepting it with gratitude when it arises, it is of a far greater impact upon us. It seems far more beautiful. And there's a third aspect to it, because we don't want to keep it. We have no fear or anxiety that it might be lost. So for the first time in one's life, one can enjoy whatever there is in purity. We don't want to keep it. We haven't looked for it. And it doesn't have our expectation. Neither expectation, nor search for it, nor do we want to keep it. And because of these three factors being removed, the enjoyment becomes pure and therefore much, much greater. It is... It has an inner resultant of resonating with the experience without anything being put into the experience like I want to have it, I want to keep it, I want to get it I want to see it, I want to know it nothing like that one just resonates with the experience and that's very joyful so disenchantment is the first step where we are actually on the path to Nibbana. It's not a super mundane step that. The next one is. This one isn't. That's why the next one is only mentioned. This is uh, the path to Nibbana in brief, this sutta. This enchantment is not super mundane yet, but it is the first step on the pathway there. The rest, the beginning of it all, these first steps, were all the methods to get to this. It's only when we see that the world has really nothing to offer which is worthwhile pursuing. That's when we know. 
when we our priorities change then we are really on the spiritual path what takes us to disenchantment and tomorrow I'll start with this discussion which is mentioned here as a next step after seeing impermanence it's a very quick but also what I've been saying is also very quick it doesn't work quite that quickly it takes a little longer than just one hour to actualize it if you have any questions Uh, these inside steps are they step by step and all uh, like the eight full parts all on the eight full level or is one uh, step made complete and then go to the next usually 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 first one sees but they can follow each other very quickly if one is practicing well um, mind and matter arising and ceasing uh, seeing cause and condition and watching the mental aggregates all this can follow each other very quickly and uh, from that then coming to that point of where everything falls apart uh, these can be these can be almost you know sort of together practically yes they can be together, together. yes Yes, but these things can can happen very quickly that, you know, it's all sort of like a, a big understanding altogether. But then after that, yes? It can also take lives. <laughs> yes, it can, of course. But it's not likely. It's not likely. Because the, when you take the first step and you see that mind and matter are separate, uh, mind and body, sorry, are separate, you start thinking. It really sets, sets a person thinking, saying, well, now, I didn't think of it like this before, you know. And then when you see that everything changes all the time, everything arises, the mind gets on a track. It takes probably lifetimes till you get to the first step. But once having gotten to the first step, these steps from mind and matter being two to the dissolution of everything that arises seems to be more like a conglomerate of insight. It is mentioned separately, but it appears more like a conglomerate of insight. And if it isn't, and if you have a teacher, he or she will certainly push you to it, you know, if it hasn't become clear. Because that is still on a very worldly level to see all that. You know. But after that, after the dispassion, uh, the, sorry, the dissolution, then when the terror comes, that may take a while to get to the danger or one can be totally stopped too or this idea not necessarily terror but when the mind says or the ego says well you know that's enough now I'll get my rights no matter what that can take time then at that moment and, uh, to get to see the, the danger in it all and there it's very important to have a teacher and of course important to listen also 
It's a fear arising from seeing that everything falls apart. There's nothing you can put your um, can put your finger on that can give you security. That is the moment when you can either actually turn towards real understanding or turn back and say, "I've had enough of this." It's a very important moment, but it's certainly not a past moment. No, we'll get to the past moment. Just give me time. <laughs> when the fear comes, you mean? Uh, no, no. No, no, no. Who's having the fear? When there's nobody there, there's no fear. But the, the, you see, the fear arises because of the fact that you see everything falling apart and you can't find anywhere where you can put the ego and say, now come on, be quiet, you're fine there. It's just everything is falling apart. So then you get fearful because the ego is acting up and says, I don't want this kind of business. I want to have a nice safe spot somewhere. So it's, you don't really see that there's nobody there. If you saw that nobody there, you wouldn't have any fear. That's right, yes. Because of everything falling apart, you see that there's nothing to hang on to. And that creates then that feeling of, um, hmm, I didn't mean it that seriously, really. All I wanted to do was meditate a little. (laughs) (laughs) It's not uncommon. In fact, it's very common. You know, that reaction. But then, as we keep on going, you will come to that point where there's really nobody there. Is that what you had in mind, or? Mm-hmm. Yes. Joanna? Why is it for me to get through this, like, feeling that I expected in? I'm not sure what that means. Okay, it starts out with mind and body being separate. Mm-hmm. Then it's seeing the arising and ceasing. Mm-hmm. Come and go with, with the breath, with the meditation subject, also with other things in yourself or outside. It's always a meditation subject. Then the third step is the cause and conditions which have made the aggregates arise. Now sometimes that's step three and four, and one, sometimes it's step three together. It depends who's writing about it. It's cause and condition, it's called and then the five aggregates, right? So sometimes it's one number and sometimes it's two numbers. And then after that, after seeing that, then comes seeing the dissolution, the dissolving of everything. And after that comes the terror. Yeah. So the dissolving and the terror are 
Yeah, yeah. The chara is a is a result of the seeing the dissolving. Yeah, yeah, always given two different numbers, whoever writes it, yes. And then the next step after the terror is seeing the danger, when you've got through the terror already, then you see the danger in existence, and then comes the desire for deliverance. And after that comes the disenchantment. Two things. But they can arise, you know, like almost together. If the terror comes and you see the danger in the whole, in the whole of existence, you've gone through the terror. No. Two, two different things. The words seem to be matching, but it's two different uh, aspects. The terror arises because of the fact of having seen this falling apart, right? The breath falls apart, the thought falls apart, the feelings fall apart, the body falls apart. So what is there? Right? Okay, now the ego says, you've gone one step too far, all I wanted to do was meditate a little. I mean, this is going too far and you get scared of going further. But having gone through that being scared, the next insight is, seeing that existence is dangerous. Because it falls apart, but it's no longer a feeling of fear or terror about it, but it's an acceptance of the danger of this um, falling apart existence. So it has a different quality to it. Is that clear? Okay, and after that comes the desire for deliverance, having seen that quite clearly. Okay? Okay. Yes, so... Can you see the danger without going through the terror? Yes. Certainly. And is it worthwhile the self experience? Sorry, I didn't catch is, that. Is it worthwhile the self experience? The danger one? Yes. Certainly. Uh, again and again. Because that brings up the vega, the urgency to practice. Certainly. The more often you see the danger in existence because of the dukkha, right? The more the mind says, oh, okay, oh, yes, that's right, I must practice. Mm, certainly. It's not worthwhile resurrecting the terror because the terror is always on the verge of bringing, him, bringing one off the practice. But the danger certainly. The danger is an acceptance of the fact that nothing is satisfactory. A seeing of the, it's a very strong feeling of dukkha which makes one practice. Yes, very good to resurrect. No, no way. But these steps may uh, come very quickly to a person because of past karma and because of, uh, uh, you know, karmic circumstances in this life. So it can be a conglomeration of the whole thing. It doesn't have to be, but it can be one step at a time and then another year and another step. It's also possible. But for some people, the first lot comes in a sort of like a conglomerate 
as far as the dissolution, and then the next steps come as a conglomerate. But after disenchantment, then comes dispassion, we'll talk about tomorrow. And after that, after dispassion, things become a little more difficult. <laughs> but it's a comic resultant also. It's a comic resultant what teacher one gets. I mean, nobody gets it by accident. It's also comic, you know. And it's very comic if you if a, if a teacher is there and you don't get him or her. It's also comic resultant, you know. Teacher's right there, but what do you know? Nothing. Don't know, even go near that teacher. There's this Tanachan uh, Mahaboa. You like the books, huh? He was uh, enlightened Arahant. And uh, he, his monastery is um, right next or very close to the village he was born in. The people of the area built the monastery. He has a brother who lives in the home village. The brother is a murderer. Put in prison. He himself Arahant. So, that's the best example of karmic resultants. Huh? I mean, he had the the greatest uh, teacher right in front of him. Didn't even go near the monastery. So. But uh, that can come as a conglomerate, the whole thing. But uh, it usually comes... I would say it is more common, but this is a generalization, it's more common that one goes one step at a time and becomes more and more used to having taken that step. It becomes part of oneself more and more, and then comes the next step. Now, that need not take uh, years. It may take uh, a month, or it may take a week, or something like that. But um, it's usually, it doesn't fall down, you know, from heaven like a whole packet, usually. It just comes little by little. Yes. The way you described that particular situation with the murderer and his brother living almost alongside one another, that sort of tend that suggests almost a, a denial of free will, or the way you described it? No, we don't. It doesn't deny free will. But what we have is we have free will like a goat that you put on a leash and put a stick in the ground and the length of the leash that's how far she can go around in a circle and she can pick where she wants to be in that circle and if if we make good karma the leash gets longer and we have more and more opportunities and eventually our opportunities become great enough and our leash long enough so that we can actually have a, a go at becoming uh, enlightened. Now, we may be born with a long leash. We may have brought that with us. But we all have a leash as long as we have the ego illusion. Mm-hmm. And within that leash's uh, distance, circumference, we may move. Yeah, but you only get that free will, uh, sorry, free consciousness and awareness also 
by making more good karma and uh, by meditating and all that. It's very good karma to be able to meditate. It's excellent karma to be able to have the meditative absorption. One should go on on one's bended knees every night and thank one's own good karma for having been able to do this. So it's a very an, an excellent resultant of uh, past uh, efforts. Naturally, also in this life, efforts naturally, but also past efforts. But we can't actually find you know the exact cause and effect there. It's too interwoven. The Buddha said, it "Doesn't matter. Main thing is we've got it." <laughs> yes, Joanne. Oh, I would I would be quite convinced of that. In fact, I often say we've probably been around when the Buddha was there, we just didn't listen. Oh, really? I'm sure. <laughs> Little dense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, I, I think so. I think I, that is my own personal viewpoint. Uh, because we are so far removed from it, you mean physically because we weren't born into it. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Of course. We've done it all. Hundreds of times, probably. And now we sit here again. We're doing it again. <laughs> One of these days we're going to get it. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. This time we're going to do it right. (laughs) Please put your attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your own heart and find the love that it contains without having an object for it. Just find that loving quality in your heart which is warm and caring embracing 
and giving. Let this feeling fill you from head to toe. Feeling combines warmth and care and joy and now let this feeling flow out of you into the room. Filling everyone here with that feeling, feeling of love in your heart, which needs no reason or cause, which just is and flows and gives. Let it flow further into the forest to all the animals, large and small, the trees, bushes, grass, water, rocks, flowers. This feeling of warmth and care and togetherness drawing quite close embracing in oneness.
let this feeling flow further to people, nature, animals, beings, seen or unseen. feeling of warmth, of care, of oneness, embracing connectedness, love without cause or condition. Let it flow further and further to embrace this whole globe of ours. Let your love flow further out into the sky with its moon and stars and sun into the whole universe with all its realms of existence and consciousness. Let it flow as far as it will go unlimited no cause, no condition, drawing together in oneness.
Now think of any one person who you think would benefit greatly from feeling your love directed towards that person. Now think of any one person whom you usually don't love very much and now direct your heart's content to that person loving without cause or condition just loving Now fill yourself with the love and warmth and care that your heart contains. May beings everywhere learn to love without cause or conditions. 